Good morning. Greetings in Jesus' name. It's really good to have a warm place to gather together this morning. Outside, it is cold and um, grateful for God's provisions. Um, I'm preaching this morning on a subject on prayer, and um, the section that Paul read here, uh, Luke chapter 11, is an abbreviated version of what we call the Lord's Prayer. Matthew records his prayer in the gospel, in his gospel, in Matthew chapter 6, and he gives a little more detail in his record of the Lord's Prayer, and this, I say, is an, an abbreviated version. I had Paul read this because of verse 1, really. I want to look at that a little bit this morning, and um, maybe as we do that, I'd like for um, uh, you all to give some feedback here. Um, here in this occasion, in, in, in uh, chapter 11, verse 1, we see that um, it came to pass that as he was praying, meaning as Jesus was praying, in a certain place, doesn't give us where he was, <clears throat> and he tells us when he stopped praying, his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. As I picture this event unfolding, I think Jesus, I don't know how long he was praying, we don't know, it doesn't give us the details, but he was spending time in prayer. His disciples obviously um, observed this time of prayer with him, and uh, when he was finished, they said, Lord, teach us how to pray. Then he goes on into the, the uh, and he teaches them how to pray. So as you think about prayer this morning, I'd like to have a little bit of feedback from you. What, what is prayer? In a, in a simple definition, how would you describe prayer? Communication. Communication. If you're in your living room and you're praying, and somebody were to walk in and ask you, what are you doing, what would you say? Talking to God. Talking to God. Communication. Prayer is, you, you, there's many different kinds of prayer, but all of them is simply a communication with God. It's simply a way of communicating with God, talking to God. So I imagine the disciples here were observing Jesus and they thought some, they would have noticed something different about Jesus in the way that he prayed. Then they asked the question, said, teach us, Lord. We want to learn how to pray, so teach us how to do this. <clears throat> As John taught, I hadn't spent any time with that. I, I don't know. Obviously, John um, taught his. You have more on that, Sam. I don't. It just stood out. Yeah, I mean, you could take from the text that. Yes, Jesse. Obviously, John did teach his disciples how to pray. 
and he said, teach us how to pray as well. <clears throat> so this morning, I'd like to go through the Lord's Prayer, but maybe before we do that, let's look at a little bit on uh, what we know about Jesus' prayer life. Um, I find it interesting, Jesus being the Son of God, coming to earth, he was fully man, and somehow he was still God in some way. And so here he is on this earth, and one of the, the main things, as you read throughout Scripture, we can see he spent a significant amount of time communicating with God, talking with God. And we'll just look at a few of those this morning. Um, the disciples would have seen, you know, prior to this time, I think they would have seen Jesus pray often. This wasn't the first time that they saw Jesus pray. They would have often seen him pray. And so um, one, of the, one of the things, when I think about Jesus in prayer, one of the first things that comes to mind is his encounter in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. And that takes place in Matthew chapter 26, verse 37 through 38. Let's turn there for just a moment, and we'll look at what Jesus prayed here in this text. Matthew chapter 26, verse 37 through 38. It says here that he took Peter and two sons of Zebedee, and uh, he began to be very sorrowful. He began to be sorrowful and very heavy, Scripture tells us. And then he said to them, he said this to Simon and the two sons of Zebedee, My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. Tarry ye here, watch with me. So Jesus is preparing his prayer life here with God, if you will. He's going in, getting ready to pray, and he began to just be exceeding sorrowful. Another translation says this, he took with him Peter and James and John, and to be struck with terror and amazement, he was deeply, deeply troubled and depressed. Depressed. Have you ever thought of the Lord as being depressed? Jesus as being depressed? He was deeply troubled. He was struck with terror as he realized what was coming ahead of him, being fully man, and he begins this prayer with God. He falls down on the ground, I would imagine, and he begins praying to God. And uh, he's, he says things like, Father, if this cup may not pass away from me, or may, may this cup pass away. He asked God to take this away. He was in in, in a Dutch word we would call it, he was in the angst. He was in, he was in angst. He was in deeply distressed. What can we learn about Jesus' prayer here in the Garden of Gethsemane? Falling down, deeply distressed, and now he stands up, he goes back up to his disciples, he says, the time has come. After he has went through this agonizing time and in uh, surrendering his will to the will of the Father, he is now ready to engage in battle. 
He is now resolute, ready to face the enemy, and they come. And he was calm, he was resolute. Through the whole process, there was nothing that would have uh, unsettled him because he won the battle in the garden on his knees. We look at the disciples, we see the opposite was true for them. They, when, when the guards came to take him, they, began, they got flustered, they ran, they scattered. Uh, one of them even drew his sword and cut off one of the man's ears. And Jesus just was calm and resolute, picked up the ear, healed it back on. His battle was won half hour earlier, or however long it was from then, five minutes earlier. He had won the battle on his knees, and now he was ready to engage. <clears throat> I wonder, you know, as disciples, as they grew in their walk with the Lord later, I'm sure they look back on those times, they realize, you know, even Peter, for example, he was obviously flustered all through the process. He's denying Jesus and he's, you know, all over the place. And um, I had to think, you know, is, it, is that true of my life? Do I win the battles on my knees? Or am I running around flustered and just... Uh, just always in reaction mode. Jesus won the battle on his knees. <clears throat> Another thing we see here um, is Jesus, one, one, on one occasion, Jesus prayed all night. He prayed all night, and that was the, the night before he chose his 12 disciples. He had a follower, he had following of disciples. Now it was time to choose the 12. He spent all night in prayer. Scripture tells us he prayed all night before he chose the 12 disciples. The Apostle Paul says that we should pray without ceasing. How much does this thing distract from praying? I have my own battle with this thing. I'll be honest with you. How much does this distract our communication with God? Just think about that. How much, how much time are we taking away from God in communicating with God while we're busy WhatsApping and texting and, and Instagramming and everything else that goes on, YouTubing, what, whatnot, whatever it is? How much time is this device pulling away from our communication with God? Jesus had a cell phone. How much time would he spend on it? I don't know. The gospel record words that Jesus spoke in prayer. He thanked God for his revelation. He prayed before raising Lazarus from the dead. He had the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. He prayed in the garden. He prayed on the cross. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Sometimes he prayed one-liners. Sometimes he prayed an entire uh, night. Sometimes he prayed early in the morning he would get up and pray. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me on the cross? He said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He prayed at his baptism when he was baptized. He regularly withdrew from crowds and went to pray. He prayed after he healed people. He prayed before he healed people. He prayed before he walked on the water. 
His disciples were sent across, and he came back and prayed, and stayed back and prayed, and then went to meet them. He prayed before Peter's confession. He prayed at the transfiguration. He prayed even right here in Luke chapter 11 before teaching his disciples the Lord's Prayer. He was praying. He prayed for Peter's faith. Do you know that? He prayed for Peter's faith. He said, I pray for you, Peter. I prayed for you. I prayed that your faith would not fail you, he told Peter. He told him Satan was wanting at you. But I prayed for you. I interceded on your behalf. Jesus prayed before the feeding of the miracles. He prayed at the Last Supper. He prayed before and after the great events of his life. He prayed when life was unusually busy. Now we come to the prayer that he taught his disciples in Matthew chapter 6. I'd like for us to get an understanding this morning on what it is that God has in mind with this prayer. My prayer was, as I was studying, was also, Lord, teach me how to pray. I want to learn how to pray. I want to learn to pray according to your will. And that's my goal this morning, is to get us to understand what is God's will in our prayer life and how does that fit into our everyday life. Matthew chapter 6 Many of us could quote this by memory. In our house, we've made it a daily prayer. And uh, some people say, well, you shouldn't get into ritualistic prayers and pray something ritualistic. We should pray spontaneous prayers. And um, I agree, there is always a danger of praying something like this and it becoming ritualistic. And sometimes it does for us. And I have to draw my mind back in. But we can engage and pray something like this, I believe, intelligently. When we know what we're praying for and we're intentional in how we pray. He told them, he said, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. He said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. One thing we know for sure, if we model our prayers after this prayer, we know that we will not be asking anything amiss. We can be certain that we will be asking according to the will of God. James says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss. And so it is possible for us, I believe, to pray and ask for things amiss from the, from the will of God. And so what can we learn from the Lord's Prayer? We, too, can learn to pray as the disciples learn to pray. The first phrase that comes to mind here, that comes from this uh, prayer, is a very important phrase. It says, Our Father. 
And so I believe we can pray as sons. Let's pray as sons. God's, it, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father. That's the first thing. We can pray as sons. How do true sons regard their, their father anyway? If you are a true son and you have a father, how do you regard your father? Um, I'm thinking more on the terms of little children. We're in the stage of raising a family. And I've observed uh, over the years that our children are quick to take what we take, what we say. And they believe what we say. They take it at face value, say, yeah, that must be the way it is. They usually don't argue. Uh, so there comes a certain age where it becomes a little different. But um, early in life, they, they take what you say and say, well, yeah, Dad said it, so that must be the way it is. That's how we can come to God. Our Father, we're saying, I, I want to relate to you as a son. We believe what he says in his word. We take his word and we say, yeah, we believe that he, he means what he says. This is what he wants to communicate with us. <coughs> <clears throat> We trust what he says is right and good for us. When we address him as our father, we are saying we trust you. And we, when we, know, and we know that you know what is right and good for us. He then is also a fatherly God. If, he says, if we say our father, that indicates we are sons. But then it also says something about him. It says when we say our father, we're also saying... He is our Father, and so He is a fatherly God. What does Scripture tell us about this? John chapter 3 says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Have you thought about yourself as a son or daughter of God? John chapter 1, verse 12 through 18, the Gospel of John for as many as, we have, as many as received that him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We, the sons of God? Sons? Really? I look at myself and I say, I really... If you look at God as a father, and if I look at myself as a son, I must say there's been, I've, there's been times in my life when I've been a pretty pitiful example of the son of God. But it's what he says. He says we are his sons if we're following him. <clears throat> Why not slaves or second-class citizens? Scripture does indicate that we are slaves in the sense of servants, but he, he says no sons. Scripture has more to say about this. In Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it says, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. We don't fear our Father. You have not received a spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Galatians 4, 6, and 7. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son 
into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, here he says this, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And then if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. So then if we are a son, then we are also an heir. Viewing God as our father and viewing us as his sons. This gives us the clearest description of what our relationship can be like with God, with Abba, Father. You can feel the affection that comes into that phrase, Abba, Father. Can we really grasp that we are sons? Can we really, do we really grasp that, that we are God's sons? Do we live with this reality in our minds as we live our daily life? Let's see, this is a very privileged relationship. It's not like an owner and a slave, but it's a father and a son. Very intimate, very close relationship. So then we should pray as sons. The second thing we see coming through there is um, our father is notice, notice, notice something here in this, in this prayer. When Jesus modeled this prayer, he said, this, this is how you pray. There is no I or me or my in the prayer. He begins by saying, our. So that means that whoever is in here is, and following Christ, we can say he is our father. So collectively, as a unit, our father. No singular pronouns here. It is our Father. It is give us, forgive us, lead us, deliver us. It's all plural. <clears throat> what does that tell us about God's heart? Our Father. It means I see brotherhood coming through here means we do things together. <clears throat> Our Father, we pray as a brother. And you know what that means? Sometimes for me, I find myself maybe this forces us when we say our Father and we recognize that God is our Father, all of us together collectively. It puts us all on the same plain as sons. I don't believe God has favorites. And so, we cannot say, think about this phrase, we cannot say our father, our father, unless we are also willing to claim all of his children as our brothers and sisters. We cannot say our father if we're not then also willing to claim all of his children as our brothers and sisters. <clears throat> which art in heaven. So the next phrase there, our Father, then which art in heaven. And what I see here is God is, in, in, the, in, in past, in the Jewish time, <clears throat> during this time, they're seeing God as a faraway person. Somebody that couldn't be reached, that, didn't, that wouldn't even utter his name, Yahweh. 
um, which art in heaven. And Jesus is saying now, he's saying, our Father, which art in heaven, brings, brings him close. Um, and I believe what comes through here is we should see things from God's perspective. God is God, and he, he sees things, um, he sees a complete picture. Uh, an example of that is the 12 spy, spies, when they went into Canaan, um, they all, when they went into the land of Canaan to spy it out, they all saw the same things. All 12 of them, when they came back, had seen the same things. 10 of them said, oh, the land is, there's big giants there, this is terrible, we're never going to take this on. Had a very negative view of, of the land and what would happen to them if they would go in there. There was only two of them that believed God's promises. God had said, this is going to be your land and you will take the land. And those two came back and said, yeah, there's giants there. Yeah, there's good fruit there. There's all these things there. But God will see us through. The other ten doubted and suffered from unbelief. They, but the two saw it from God's perspective. They said, yes, God can, we, we can do this through God. Hallowed be thy name. I'm curious, when you, when you hear the word hallowed, what do you think about? What comes to mind? Holy. Hallowed be thy name. It's not a word we typically use, but Dave's right, it's holy. It has the idea of being set apart. I believe if we pray this prayer, what we're really saying is hallowed be thy name in us. Okay? Hallowed be your name in us. The way we live can either bring honor and glory to your name, his holy name, or we can defile it. We really can, right? <clears throat> I believe we should be careful how we represent God. In other words, um, as we relate to each other as a brotherhood, brothers and sisters, you know, let's be careful not to bring condemnation on one another or condemn the person next to you. Now, if somebody's living in sin, of course that person is going to feel condemned. But from a brother to brother, I believe we should be very careful that we hallow God's name in our relationships, in our brotherhood relationships. I had to think, when Kurt, as, as I was studying here, um, you know, there's many people in the world where they, the only Bible they'll ever read is you and I's lives. And um, I was thinking about Kurt's experience in Haiti when the gun was going the wrong way for him. Um, maybe that person got to read a little bit of the Bible that day. Maybe he saw something and he would have went away and said, that was strange. Was God, we can hollow God's name and how we respond to situations in our lives. Very important. Maybe this is, maybe for some people, when you rub shoulders with them, you will be the only person that they'll ever, that they will, you will be representing God in a way they will never see it. 
in any other way unless they read God's word and come to know him. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. I'm seeing I'm going to run out of time here this morning, so maybe we'll have to split this up in two ways. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, as it is in heaven. Do we take Jesus' words? When Jesus says something, I appreciated Paul's uh, comment on this the other Sunday in his sermon. Do, do, we, do we actually believe and live what Jesus said? His words. He says, thy kingdom come. Th- come. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth. Right here. As it is. Where? In heaven? Here? Really? You mean, we can do things here as... This is an incredible statement. The first thing I see coming through here, I'm going to break this out in several different uh, sections here. The first thing I see coming through here is he wants a society here on this earth that accomplishes a heavenly mission. He wants a society on earth that accomplishes a heavenly mission. And I had to think of an embassy. So um, I haven't traveled much, uh, only into one other country, but I understand there's embassies, the US has embassies all over in different countries. And if you're an American and you're in a certain country and you want to be represented, you're going to go to the embassy. Some of you missionaries who've been traveling abroad could, could explain this a lot better than I can. An embassy, as according to a, uh, a um, according to a definition I found, is a diplomatic mission or a foreign mission as a group of people from a state or organization present in another state to represent the sending state or organization officially in the receiving or host state. Let me read that again. A diplomatic mission or foreign mission is a group of people from a state or an organization present in another state, meaning another country, to represent the sending state or organization officially in the receiving the host state. God says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done here as it is in heaven. So I believe what this is saying is that God wants, he really desires to have little embassies set up all over the world. His kingdom is in heaven. But he wants his his kingdom to come here through us. And we plan all these little embassies all over the world representing that kingdom. It's a wonderful truth. Who wouldn't want to be a part of something like that? We're part of God's kennedom. We're here, Peckway Amish Mennonite Church. We should see ourselves as such. We are a little piece of what we should be, 
a little piece of what God has in mind for an embassy right here. When people see, and the school, Pequay School, same thing. It's a, it's a, it's a mission. It's a mission representing our heavenly kingdom. I, I found myself in study just pondering this thought. And I was smitten myself. You know, sometimes a preacher, he ends up getting like, wow, well, how am I doing in this? And I had to wonder, what if every morning, when my foot hits the ground, I say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth, just like it is in heaven. What if when my foot hits the ground every morning, I repeat that phrase and I mean it and I live it all day? Jesus was very intentional, I believe, in teaching his disciples to not only pray, but also to live the prayer. The second thing I see coming through here is we pray for obedience in this prayer. As we are saying, thy will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. So we are praying for obedience. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To ask ourselves a question How do we know the will of God? How do we know what the will of God is? Sometimes it's very easy to understand. We got the will of God because it is written in His Word. Let me just illustrate this by saying, by this story. Let's say there was a man, let's say you're going to the bank one day, and you go up to the bank, and in front of the door on the bank, there's a man pacing back and forth in front of the door. And he's obviously distressed, and he's trying to just, he's, he's talking and just distressed. And you approach him and you say, can I help you with something? And he says, yeah, he says, sure. He says, I'm praying to God on whether or not I should rob this bank. What do you think? What would you say? No debate on that one. No, don't rob the bank. That's not God's will. How do we know? What if he says, well, you know what? I'm really trying to provide for my family. I lost my job, and, and I have 10 children at home, and they're all hungry, and my wife is hungry. I, I, I really need some resources here. Does that justify it? Say, no, don't rob the bank. I'll help you out. Don't. That's, that's bad. Don't do that. Of course not. God's will has already been revealed to us, so there's no need to debate that one. How do we do, though, with some of the things that God says? When God says, no, divorce and remarriage is wrong. Or when he says, you should love your brother. 
I can challenge myself on this, on this subject. On the lesser things, on the things that maybe it's not so obvious, right? Of course you don't rob a bank. But what about some of the other things that God said, already clearly said in his word, what we should do? What about those things? Well, I prepared for the whole thing. Now I'm not sure how to wrap this up. We pray for obedience. And I see that coming through here in in this passage here. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so I guess as we wrap this up, let's, let us think about that in our, in our daily lives. When we step out of bed in the morning, am I stepping out of bed to serve myself that day? Or am I stepping out of bed and saying, yes, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I'm willing to be used for whatever you have for me that day. And of course, the practical way in, the, in how those things are fleshed out can be different for each of us. <coughs> I'd like to just leave that challenge with you this week as you, as you, as you step out of bed in the morning. Maybe think about it. Think about it. If just one, one morning of the week, that's okay. But just think about it. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, let's kneel together and pray.